Hey, everybody. I'm Tim Mackey, and this is my podcast, Exploring My Strange Bible. I am a card-carrying Bible history and language nerd who thinks that Jesus of Nazareth is utterly amazing and worth following with everything that you have. On this podcast, I'm putting together the last 10 years worth of lectures and sermons where I've been exploring the strange and wonderful story of the Bible and how it invites us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. And I hope this can be helpful for you, too. I also help start this thing called The Bible Project. We make animated videos and podcasts about all kinds of topics in Bible and theology. You can find those resources at thebibleproject.com. With all that said, let's dive into the episode for this week. All right, well, in this episode, we are going to take some time to explore the meaning and significance of uh, the Last Supper, uh, Jesus' famous Last Supper with his disciples, the night he was uh, betrayed and arrested uh, and led off on his uh, trial to be crucified. The meaning and the symbolism of that uh, final meal that he had with the disciples, it left such an impression on the circle of his disciples that was there. Some kind of account of that meal has made its way into every single one of the Gospels in the New Testament and also has made its way into one of Paul's letters, the Apostle Paul in in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This was an immensely important moment in the story of what happened to Jesus and also how his followers found themselves called to participate and reenact and relive that meal on a weekly basis, and that's been happening in churches around the world ever since uh, the Jesus Movement's inception 2,000 years ago. The meal goes by various names in church traditions today, whether it's communion or the Lord's Supper or the bread and the cup or the Eucharist or the Mass. But where did this come from? So what we're going to do, actually, this was a teaching I gave. Uh, It was highly interactive. I did it right uh, around... Uh, a couple of years ago, but before and leading up to Resurrection Sunday, uh, so it coincided with uh, Holy Week. And basically what I do is reenact a short version of a Messianic Passover. This meal uh, was the ancient Jewish Passover meal that itself was celebrating and reenacting an ancient foundation story for the Israelites, their liberation from slavery in Egypt. And so Jesus is intentionally timing and calling upon all the symbolism of the Passover meal to explain what was about to go down in Jerusalem over the next few days and the meaning of his death. So uh, just for reference, as you're listening to this, what I actually did was set up a little table in the front of uh, the sanctuary at Door of Hope. I invite some volunteers up, and we have this kind of symbolic meal together. So uh, it's kind of silly because, you know, it's fun to walk people through the Passover meal. If you really wanted to do the Passover meal right, it would take a couple hours. And there are really amazing versions of a, a Messianic or like a Christian Jewish Passover. You can Google them, find them online. But this is a condensed one that I use from the Gospel of Luke's account of the Last Supper. Okay, enough talking. We'll uh, explore and, and learn together, but I hope it's as helpful for you as it was fun and helpful for me. I learned a ton in the process. So there you go. Let's dive in together. Uh, so Palm Sunday, 
Uh, some of us may have grown up in and around church traditions or maybe knowing Christians or something who did a lot of things related to the church calendar. Um, I'm imagining that m- a whole bunch of us, maybe even most of us, didn't grow up with any practices or regular traditions around the Christian calendar except for Christmas and Easter, right? And other than that, and mostly because those have become completely other versions of something in our culture, but there's all these other uh, moments in the Christian year of like Epiphany and Advent and, and Ash Wednesday and, and uh, Lent and so on. And some of us may have grown up doing these things. I'm guessing most of us haven't. I sure didn't, right? And so I'm about, you know, as, as like homeless as they come in terms of the history of the Christian tradition, uh, in terms of sacred time. And this is, a, this is an anomaly in church history. Most Christians, through most of church history, have had their daily, weekly, monthly lives woven into the calendar, the Christian calendar, which is essentially, it's a way of marking moments, certain moments and days as reminding you of the big story that, that we're in. American Protestant Christians, for the most part, we just, we're adrift when it comes, when it comes to this. And I'm imagining that's how most of us uh, feel. So, you know, you probably, my guess is that most of us probably know that Easter is next Sunday. My guess is that most of us were probably surprised that it's coming when we found out somewhere the last week or something like that. Are you guys with me? Right? It's, how many of you, this is totally Easter every year. You're like, oh, it's here? Holy cow, it's here. I had no, no idea, right? Before I was a paid Christian, right? like working at a church, I, totally, I always forgot Easter, right? And I never remembered it until I ha- had to because beginning of planning and, and thinking about Sundays and so on. So I never remembered. Easter was always like a surprise to me. That shows just how adrift we are, right, in our culture, in, in, in the practice or lacking the practice of the Christian calendar. And I think it's to our detriment. Really, I do. For, for a number of different reasons. So some of us are surprised, right, when I said, you know, Easter's coming, or maybe last week when we said it, and we're like, oh, yeah, Easter. Um, how many of you have had an experience like that that has nothing to do with religious holidays? Um, so today's March 24th, for example. How many of you in the last week or two have had some sort of forehead-slapping moment or a conversation where you're like, holy cow, like, it's, it's March. It's March already. You know what I think? Like, it's, this, wasn't it just January 1st, New Year's? Like, how, it's already like a third, a quarter of the way into 2013. How is that happening? The last week was like a blur. Where did the last month go? You guys know what I'm talking about here. These are such strange realizations. That it's like, where is the time going? And so what it, what it shows is that our perception of our passage through time is chaotic and disordered. And the whole purpose of having some kind of rhythmic calendar, what the Christian calendar has done, is to provide moments that where, you, where you remember that this little story that I'm living out day to day, it fits into a bigger picture. And it's not just random chaotic noise. It actually, my little story has some sort of role in this big story that I'm reminding myself of. That's the Christian calendar. There's one culture that has an older, older, much older calendar than Christianity, and where people have been marking these moments of sacred time for like millennia now. It's, this is a culture that grasps the significance of rhythms in our calendar. What culture am I talking about? There's a Jewish culture, right? And, the, and actually, the Christian calendar was born right out of, of the Jewish 
calendar. So, so for example, in, in Jewish culture, there are daily rhythms, morning prayers and scripture readings, morning, noon, evening, to remind you of who you are, of what this is all about, about the story that I'm in. There are weekly rhythms of Sabbath. There are the annual rhythms, the annual feasts and festivals. And so like in the fall, it's called the high holidays. And there's all of these awesome festivals, and all of them are meals or events that retell some foundation story in the scriptures about who, who we are as a Jewish people and what we're all about. So you have the, the Feast of Tabernacles, and you go camp out in your backyard with friends and family and remember the ancestors as they traveled in tents through the wilderness. We have the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. You have uh, Rosh Hashanah to remember the new year and the giving of the Torah. All these moments, but the, the pinnacle of the Jewish calendar uh, is a festival that happens in the spring that coincides with Palm Sunday and Easter. And what festival is this? It's Passover. It's Passover. It's the crown jewel of, of the Jewish feasts. Because the, the Passover is the, tells the foundation story of, of how Yahweh rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt into the freedom of the promised land, protected them through the wilderness and into the promised land. And it's a week-long festival that culminates in the feast of, of Passover. Jesus grew up steeped in these sacred rhythms of time. It's, it's this calendar that shaped his view of the world and who he was, and was a part of helping, obviously, gaining his sense of significance and identity in what he came, what he came to do. And Passover is it's not coincidental that Easter and Passover connect every year. It's because on Palm Sunday, Jesus intentionally chose the week leading up to Passover as his final week. He knew, he clearly knew it was coming. He was telling his followers, even though none of them could grasp, that he was going to Jerusalem to die. And he rode into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, it's today, on a donkey, and he pulled the stunt in the temple, the whole thing, turning over the tables, and he made a lot of enemies that day. And that stunt earned a price on his head. Because in that act, he was asserting his authority over the temple. And he was asserting that this place is now corrupt and it no longer represents the God of Israel and what, what, what Yahweh, the God of Israel, intended it for. And so uh, you read the stories after that. All four Gospels tell the story of Holy Week as a week of intensifying conflict with Jesus and the religious leaders and the Pharisees. And they, they essentially put in put in motion a plot to kill him and put a price on his head. And it's Passover night where it all comes to a head. And, and so what we're going to do tonight is uh, kind of retell uh, that, the story of that last meal. Because what Jesus did, Jesus had a, a number of places where he talked about that he was going to die. There's just a small handful of places where he talked about the meaning of his death. Jesus didn't say enough about the meaning of his death before the cross to even fill the whole page of a book, really. It was a handful of teachings. When he wanted to communicate the meaning of his death to his closest followers, he didn't write a book. He put on a meal. He put on a Passover meal. Because every part of this meal was a symbol telling that ancient story of redemption from from slavery. And so what Jesus did on that final night is he transformed the meaning of this meal to take on a whole new significance around him and around what, what was to come.
If we don't grasp Passover, we don't get Jesus because he chose Passover as the meal to explain what was about to happen on the cross and resurrection. So uh, that's what we're going to do. Uh, that's what we're going to do here tonight. You guys ready for action? So we're going to do kind of a, it takes about two hours to do Passover Seder. It's what it's called. How many of you guys have been a part of Passover Seder before? Just a handful of you. Super fun. It takes a whole evening. So we'll just do a super kind of truncated version. Actually, we're going to follow uh, the version that, uh, uh, that is in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. So why don't you grab your Bibles with me and uh, turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, uh, we're going to start in verse 7. And what we're going to trace at every step of the way, again, is how Jesus took this, I mean, this, this meal was already 1,500 years old when Jesus was around. That's 3,500 years old, our time. <laughs> this is an ancient, ancient sacred rhythm by Jesus' time, and he's going to give it, give it new meaning. Luke chapter 22, verse, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover had to be sacrificed. And so Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, go make preparations for us to eat the Passover. So it's very clear. It's all four Gospels. The last meal, the last supper, it's called, was a Passover meal. Now, I have to, there's a handful of you who might be aware of this. This is super interesting, and there's absolutely no time to get into it. But uh, if you compare all four of the Gospels on the timing of this meal, you'll see there's actually some, some tensions and some uh, potential like contradictions even between, was it Matthew, Mark, and Luke say that it was the Passover uh, night when Jesus had the meal. John seems to indicate that it was the day before Passover. A lot of it has to do with that John and the other three gospel writers are working with different kind of conceptions of the calendar. They're referring to the same night but with different words. But here's what is interesting, and I, this is a, a, a view held by a majority of people who are way smarter than I am, is that Jesus almost certainly celebrated this meal about 12 to 24 hours before everyone else in Jerusalem was celebrating the meal, and that explains that difference between uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and John's way of talking about it. And this, this is totally the way Jesus rolled. You know what I mean? He would take the way people normally thought about doing something, and he would just tweak it a little bit, always to help people understand something about himself. And so, and so he doesn't actually have, in 24 hours, he's going to be hanging on a Roman executioner's rack, right? So he doesn't have 24 more hours. And so it's almost certain that in the, it's in the wee hours of the morning, late at night, that he's having this meal just ahead on, uh, on what would be Thursday night for us. It's Passover. Passover meal. Verse 9. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city. What city is that? So it's Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was the center of uh, Passover was a pilgrimage feast. In other words, Jews would come from all over the world and flock to the city. Right? It's not a huge city geographically, and somewhere around 100,000 people, in addition, would flock to the city for, this was, a, it was packed, the streets were f full and full of music and singing and festivities and so on. It's packed. So as you enter into the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. 
follow him to the house that he enters, and then say to the owner of that house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you to a large room upstairs, all furnished, make preparations there. And so they left, and they found things just as Jesus had told them. And so they prepared the Passover. This is such a great, this is one of my favorite scenes in the Gospels. This is totally like a spy movie, you guys, <laughs> right? So think, think about it. This is Jesus' last night. He's a wanted man. There's a price on his head to kill him. He's been the most controversial public figure in the city over the last seven days. He can't just go waltzing around, right? So he has to, he, Jesus has prearranged secretly everything with all of these anonymous people, you know, it's so wonderful. So he says, go into the city and meet the man carrying the water jar. <laughs> it's so awesome. And, and this guy would stick out too, because as in this culture, a very traditional culture, like many other cultures, and it's super screwed up, who does the heavy lifting in many traditional cultures? Women, it was typically women in their culture who would be carrying a jar of water. A guy carrying a jar of water, oh, that's our man. <laughs> that's clearly our dude, because that's not normal. And so, and follow that guy down narrow streets in Jerusalem, little alleyways. Follow that guy down to the teacher of the house. You can just see the guy with the water jar. He just keeps going. Oh, this must be the place. And then the guy opens the door, and it's like code words. The teacher asks, where is, oh, the teacher, you know? And then you, and they go, and they walk upstairs, and boom, it's all, like, prepared and ready, you know? It's such a great, such a great scene here. So what, what's reflected here is that Jesus, he's brilliant, and he knows, he knows what's happening. He sees the writing on the wall. He knows he has just hours left. And he, he wants more than anything to, to create this quiet moment where he can have these final hours with the disciples to explain the meaning of his death through the Passover meal. And so, I, you know, you get the image here, everything he's prearranged to be secret and have privacy and so on. And I don't know why this might seem silly to you, but the, the image that, keep, that comes to my mind is... Uh, uh, it's from right before the last battle in The Lord of the Rings. And, uh, and Gandalf, you know, he's overlooking the fields of Pelennor, I think they are. And uh, right before the battle, and, and uh, it's that quiet night before the war. And he says of that night, he says it's like the last deep breath before the plunge. So that's the Passover. That's this night right here. The last deep breath. Verse 14. When the hour came... Jesus and his apostles, they, they reclined at the table. Now, there's a very uh, famous painting of this scene. You'll see it up here on the screen. Uh, it's a very famous painting called The Last Supper. Yes, there it is. And uh, by him, who's it by? Yeah, Da Vinci, Leonardo Da Vinci. Now, it's a beautiful painting, all kinds of interesting things. And, you know, if uh, you like good fiction, you know, read, uh, read Dan Brown's book on it, and uh, you'll see all kinds of interesting other layers of meaning in the picture. But uh, the first thing that you need to do is get this picture totally out of your head, right? So it's a wonderful piece of the Western Christian tradition. It's completely historically inaccurate in terms of the depiction of the meal. So people didn't sit at tables like that. People didn't sit at tables, upright tables like that, right, 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. Uh, if they sat at tables at, at all... Uh, they would be low tables like this, and they weren't long. They would be shaped in a circle or a semicircle or like a U-shape. And I mean, look at verse 14 right there. The apostles, what did they do at the table? They laid down. 
<laughs> to be at the table. So that's, uh, that's what, what, um, what we're going to do. So um, what I would like, this is a community fair, it's a family, get all in the family. So um, what I'd like is a couple volunteers, one guy, one girl who's going to enjoy. Homeboy, you're really eager, okay? And uh, one, one gal, yes, here we go. I see that hand. There you go, come on up. Yeah, yeah, come on up. Um, yeah, there you go. And uh, uh, there's some stairs right over here. Awesome. Hi, what's your name? My name is Thaddeus. Thaddeus? Yeah, That's wonderful. really great. Uh, feel free to have a seat here. <laughs> and hi there, what's your name? Trisha. Trisha, nice to meet you. Um, welcome to my table. Can I call you Thad or Thaddeus? Whatever you want, man. All right, I'll call you Thad and Trisha. Awesome. All right, welcome, uh, welcome to Tim's Passover meal. <laughs> Uh, great. So uh, the Passover, this is uh, one of the, again, one of the most ancient traditional religious meals in the history of the human race. In terms of people have been practicing this meal every single year, longer than any other like religious meal in the history of mankind. You know what I'm saying? Like 3,500 years. So crazy. So uh, this, this meal has attracted and grown uh, in terms of the practices and the traditions um, and so if you've been to a Passover Seder, it's going to have like way more elements than what we're going to do here. Almost certainly, uh, 2,000 years ago, the version they practiced didn't have as many things as maybe what you had here today. So this is pretty stripped down, um, and it, I don't, we don't have two hours, and I don't want to keep you here thad for two hours. So, um, so we're just going gonna, gonna to do the version that uh, we have here in Luke. Um, the, uh, the Passover meal is, is marked into four movements. Um, marked by uh, four, uh, four cups of, of wine. How old are you, Thad? Really? Yeah. <laughs> 21. 21, that's great. Okay, I anticipated, I anticipated, um, just in case, so I got uh, sparkling Concord grape juice. But, uh, but no, no, I mean, that's great. I'm, I'm happy for you that you're 21. <laughs> but just in case, I just, got, I just got grape juice. So it's sparkling, too. I think it might be fizzy. Um, so you're going to uh, need to take a few... A few swigs, so ration, ration it out. But um, great. Mm-hmm. All right. So, man, you know what? I'm sorry. You know what? This happened to me. I was, um, I got a sliver. <laughs> I got, like 30 seconds before I came out here, I'm holding onto the railing, and it hurts so bad right now. <laughs> Have you guys ever had, it was like it went straight in, one of those slivers. Anyway. <laughs> I know, yeah, right, yeah, it's not real. Anyway, okay, all right. So anyway, I just thought I'd share that, just get it out of my head so I don't, won't distract me anymore. So uh, this, uh, this meal's broken into four different movements by, uh, by four, four cups, and uh, each cup uh, over which you say a, a blessing, actually, you don't bless the, the cup or the food, it's already blessed because it's a part of God's good world. The whole point of prayer in the Jewish tradition is blessing God. It's funny, in the Christian tradition, we reverse that as if somehow the food needs to be blessed. Of course it doesn't. It's God who needs to be blessed because he provided the food. Anyway, so uh, we say a blessing uh, to God uh, for, for the cup. I'm going to sing it in Hebrew, and then uh, we'll all say it aloud together in English. You'll see it up here on the screen. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam HaBorei Puri HaKafen All together? <laughs> Me? <laughs> what? 
All together? That's that funny. <laughs> May you be blessed, O Lord our God, King of the world, who creates the fruit of the vine. Trisha, Thad, bottoms up. <laughs> it's good. It's good. Okay. Look back down at, uh, at your Bibles with me, and um, Thad and Trisha, you guys get to listen. Okay. So uh, look at verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles, they reclined at the table, and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And so after taking the cup, which we just did, he gave thanks just like we did, and said, take this and divide it among you. And we drank it. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, this is the point at which the disciples would be very puzzled, right? Because this, like, you don't mess with the Passover. Like, it's already 1,500 years old. You know what I mean? Like, you just do it. And so Jesus is, all of a sudden, he's taking the first cup and he's giving it new meaning, right? Because uh, the Passover meal is about what? Event. It's about the past, right? It's about this exodus of the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. And Jesus is saying that now this meal isn't pointing backwards to the past anymore. It's pointing forwards, right? Do you see this? It's pointing towards the future to something that's about to happen. And that something is his suffering, his death. And he says somehow the Passover, this meal is now pointing forward to his death And it's about the fulfillment of the kingdom of God or about the kingdom of God coming, he says. Now, this this assumes that you've been reading the whole Gospel of Luke up to this point. And you know that the kingdom of God was Jesus' main message. If you heard him teaching on any given day, you'd hear him talking about the kingdom. And it was his shorthand way of summarizing the story of the Bible and saying that God's promises to rescue, to bless all nations, to forgive and to redeem his world it's, it's happening. It's, it's reached the moment where those promises are coming true. He said, it's happening in me. The kingdom of God is here in me, Jesus said. And so he says, this meal is now pointing forward to the climactic moment of the kingdom of God arriving in his death. And so, and we scratch our heads, right? We're like, what? No one's ever said anything like this before. This is, this is very strange. After uh, drinking the first cup, um, we would uh, have an appetizer, as it were, by uh, dipping the carpas. Mm-hmm. Have you dipped your carpas before, Trisha? <laughs> so uh, why don't you take the smaller one of the two and, uh, and maybe just kind of tear off a piece here. And you see in this uh, white dish, um, what's going on there? I have a hair. Oh, got it. Was it your hair? Oh, oh, uh, it's horseradish string. Yeah, oh. the, the, yeah, we'll get to that later. That's the bitter herb. Uh, right now, focus on the white dish. One, <laughs> one unpleasant thing at a time. <laughs> okay, so this white dish, um, uh, it looks like water. It's actually really, really salty water. Salt water. Um, so stir it up, kind of agitate the salt, get it all over there, and we're going to dip the carpas, and then, of course, put it in our mouths. <laughs> All right, you guys with me? Ready? Yeah, yeah. Eat the carpas? Okay. All right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
Not the best taste in the world, but yeah, I might have poured extra salt in that one. I don't know. It was before I knew that it was you thought. So yeah. Okay. So oh, that's kind of hmm. It's interesting appetizer. Uh, if there's a kid at the table, the kid might ask like, oh, why do we have to dip the carpas? You know, what is that all about? So why do we dip the carpas? There's many interpretations of the dipping of the carpas through the meal's history. The oldest one is that uh, it's retelling the story of Joseph and his brothers. So you remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has how many sons? Twelve sons. The 11th is a, this punk kid named Joseph who loves to you know, rat out, out his brothers and so on. And so um, his, his dad, Jacob, loves Joseph more than all of the others. And, and so you remember he makes uh, for Joseph the special coat the Technicolor dream coat, right? And the special coat that symbolizes how much more Jacob loves him. And so his brothers are jealous. And so they plan to kill him, if you'll recall. And so uh, do you remember they, uh, they kidnap him and then they uh, put him in a pit in the ground. And then they decide not to kill him. And they, would, they find a better alternative, which is to sell him into slavery, right? Somehow that's better, uh, into Egypt. But you remember what they do? They, they need to trick Jacob, his father, into that the Joseph has died. What do they do? They take, take off his coat, they kill a, a lamb, and then they dip the coat in the blood, and then they bring it to the father. A wild animal got him or something, you know, and, and that's their story. This is the story of how the family of Abraham ends up down in Egypt, right? It's the bitter, and, and what, what flavor does uh, blood have? It's very salty, it's very salty. This is the bitter story of how the Israelites end up down in Egypt. Uh, after the, uh, the dipping of the, of the carpas, um, we all are all of a sudden, especially the kids at the table, we're like, well, this is not quite a normal way that we have a meal. And lots of questions, lots of questions. And so typically at this point, the youngest person sitting at the table would begin to ask a whole bunch of questions about the meal. Um, so since we're comfortable, I say we designate them to be the littlest kids. And uh, you all are going to ask the questions. You guys with me? Okay, so you're going to see a whole bunch of questions appear here on the screen, and I want you all to read them aloud. Here's what I don't want you to do. Somehow, in a large group, there's like this spell comes over people when we all read something aloud, and it's some, we think, I'm going to read in my most boring, monotone voice or something. So don't do that. Stop that. So even though you haven't started yet, stop it. So you're a bunch of rambunctious, even obnoxious little kids. You're not going to read it all at the same time. You have your questions, and you need to ask them now. That's right. You guys with me? Okay. Uh, uh, go ahead. Yeah, go for it. What makes this <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 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 what was that? <laughs> All right, that was epic. Um, did that happen? That probably has not happened in the history of Door of Hope up to this point. Uh, I'm so glad you asked. What wonderful question. <laughs> um, at this point, uh, the head of the table would then uh, retell the story of the Exodus. And normally it would... Uh, uh, mean a retelling of literally just rereading all these chapters of the book of Exodus. It could take up to 40, 45 minutes. Um, so let's do a shortened version, shall we, to keep, keep the meal going. 
according to Deuteronomy chapter 26, this was a version of, of something of what was said. Our ancestor was a, was a wandering Aramean, and, and God called him to the land of Canaan long ago, made promises to him that somehow through him and his family, blessing would find its way to all of the nations again. But uh, there were many, many times of famine in the land of, of Canaan. And so Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, the 12 sons, the story that we just told here. But there was a great famine, and so the whole family had to go down south to, to Egypt to find food. And in Egypt, our ancestors, they flourished, they multiplied they were, they, they were doing wonderfully there, but, uh, but the king of Egypt, what's his name? Big bad Pharaoh, yeah, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, right? This is a story that could be retold many times in human history. An immigrant population moves somewhere looking for food or work. They begin to thrive, to flourish, to multiply, and then the indigenous people group gets... They're threatened. They're scared. And so the Egyptians enact a series of measures to begin to enslave uh, and deprive and kill off the Israelites. The king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, he enacted a measure to kill all of the firstborn sons of Israel at the same time that he enslaved the rest of the population. He's trying to grind them into the ground through slave labor. And so our ancestors, they cried out, to the God of Israel, to the God of Abraham. And God heard their cry. He remembered his promises to Abraham. And he raised up a deliverer. What's his name? It's Moses. It's Moses. And through Moses, Yahweh, our God, he brought great acts of justice against Egypt's oppression and injustice. Ten great strikes against the king of Egypt and his people. And the last strike was, was the killing of the firstborn of human and animals in Egypt. But Yahweh provided a means of escape, but that's going to come later in the meal. <laughs> but it was through these great acts of mercy and justice that Yahweh rescued our ancestors out of, of, of slavery in Egypt. That's why we have this meal 1,500 years later here today. And so to commemorate the telling of the Exodus story, we would uh, raise, raise, raise our second cup. Uh, and we would actually sing a whole section of the book of Psalms called the, the Great Hallel. Psalms 113, Psalm 118. Your arm's going to get tired, Dad. <laughs> but uh, instead of singing it in Hebrew, let's just uh, read Psalm 113 aloud together. And actually, we'll do it kind of responsibly. And as we do it, think about the significance that this psalm, this song would have as we retell the story of the Exodus. Yeah? You guys with me? Praise Yahweh. From the place where the sun rises to the place where it goes down. For Yahweh is high above the nations. Who can be compared with Yahweh? Who is enthroned on high? All together. May you be blessed, O Lord our God, King of the world, 
who creates the fruit of the vine. <laughs> now, uh, uh, Rabbi Gamaliel, you guys heard of Rabbi Gamaliel? Actually, you may have. You may have. Some, a whole bunch of you are like, no, of course I haven't heard of Rabbi Gamaliel. You for sure have uh, heard and even read the writings of one of his students. He was a Pharisee named Saul, or you might know him as the Apostle Paul. His teacher, Rabbi Gamaliel, he used to say this. He was a very revered rabbi. And he said, you can celebrate the Passover a number of different ways, but any genuine Passover has to have at least three elements. It has to have uh, the unleavened bread. Shall we display our unleavened bread here? Unleavened bread. Um, it has to have uh, the bitter herb, which is in our clear dish that's coming. And it has to have uh, the Passover lamb, which uh, maybe perhaps we could show our lamb. Yeah. <laughs> so I actually, I specifically thought of whoever would be here at the seven. I thought I could prepare a real lamb, but then it would be cold and already picked over by this point. And that's gross. <laughs> silly lamb. That's we're having silly lamb. Okay. So you need uh, these three elements uh, to tell, have a, have a genuine uh, Passover. And these three elements Jesus takes up and he transforms. So uh, the unleavened bread, why don't you guys pick that up again with me. So the unleavened bread is bread uh, made without yeast. So yeast, you know, you make your dough, um, you put the yeast in and it may take hours or overnight or something for the bread to rise. And then you have like wonder loaf or something like that, whatever the, the risen loaf is, right? So uh, unleavened bread, you can make much more quickly. You don't need to wait for the the dough to rise at all, so you can just put it together, uh, roll it out flat, and then bake it, bake it on the spot very quickly. It's not, uh, it doesn't have the best consistency or flavor. It's not the most interesting bread to eat. So, like, why would we have an annual meal where we eat the unleavened bread? Exodus chapter 12, verse 39 tells us why. With the dough that the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread, the dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and didn't have time to prepare food for themselves. The Israelites needed to be ready to go any hour. They didn't have a whole night for the dough to rise. They needed to have food for the road as soon as they possibly could. Bags are packed. You got your coat on. You sleep with your coat on that night, right? That's the idea. Haste. Haste. So that's the meaning of the symbol. And 1,500 years, that the bread has that meaning and that symbol. Look at what Jesus does at this moment in the meal. It's in uh, verse 19, if you're looking down, or you'll see it up here on the screens. Then he took the bread, and he gave thanks. Baruch atadonai lohenu melech haulam, hamotzi lechem in haaretz. May you be blessed, O Lord our God, King of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth. And then uh, he broke it, gave it to his followers, and he said to them, this is my body. It's given for you. Do this in, in remembrance of me. And they would have eaten the bread together. Yep, there you go. Don't tune out. We're eating the bread together, and it's dry. You might need a drink. You might need a drink. Flaky. 
And as they're eating, the disciples are totally puzzled, like, what? No one's ever said anything like this before at a Passover I've been to. What do you mean? No, the, the bread symbolizes the haste and the hurry our ancestors were in. And Jesus takes this symbol from the past, and all of a sudden he gives it new meaning pointing to the future, to his death. In just a, a few hours, 12 hours or so, his body is going to be whipped and hung up on a Roman cross to suffocate and, and die. And, and somehow this bread symbolizes that act of his body being broken. And notice what he says, it's for you. It's for others. Somehow his suffering will bring life to others. Bread was the staple food of these people at that time that brought sustenance and life. And so Jesus puts this paradoxical symbol in front of them and says, this is, represents my body. I'm going to die, and that will bring you life. It will sustain you. No one's ever said anything like this before. Uh, after uh, the eating of the bread that can be dipped in the carpas water, that's clever, Trisha. Um, Trisha, sorry. Um, we are going to uh, then eat of the bitter herb, the marur. Uh, why don't you uh, grab your second piece of lettuce and uh, maybe kind of make a little plate, like tear it off so you have a little plate. Um, and uh, we're going to eat of the bitter herb here. Now, let's... Let's just be clear about this. The whole goal of this is to make you cry and to make your nose run. <laughs> so you, you've said yes. You're already here. Yeah, all right. So uh, it's uh, mashed and, and ground up horseradish root. And so, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to need to drink afterwards, absolutely. So, you know, you, you know it's, it's uh, Beaver brand, extra hot. So, <laughs> whatever it's going to take, the goal is to cry. So, you did, yeah, you didn't sign a waiver, did you? I guess <laughs> you can sue me. All right, you ready for action? You guys with me? Eating the bitter herb? Okay, go. Oh. How you doing? You doing all right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. There you go. Okay. Um, so, uh, quick story. The first uh, Passover seder I ever uh, went to, I was uh, I was dating uh, Jessica, my, uh, who would become my wife, and I wanted to. Im this is such a stupid. Thing to do to impress the girl you want to marry, but we were at the Seder, and I was like, I'm just going to load, load up on the bitter herb, you know what I mean? Like, just do it. And it was, I don't even, like, just knives, you know, going up your nose, and I, anyway. So, yeah, totally, yeah. I have a feeling you would do something like that, too. <laughs> okay. Uh, why do we eat the, the maror? Why do we eat the maror? Why do we do this? Why do we do this? Uh, Rabbi Gamaliel also used to say every generation of Israel 
should see themselves as the generation that came up out of Israel. We do this to not just remember, but participate in the suffering of our ancestors. Exodus chapter 1. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves, appointing brutal slave drivers over them. The Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives marar. That's why we eat the maror. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all of the work in the fields. They were ruthless in all their demands. We participate in the suffering of our ancestors by eating the bitter herb. After uh, the bitter herb would come uh, the eating of uh, the, uh, the lamb. And actually, oh, this is kind of silly. This is a serious moment, so I'll put the silly lamb away. Um, we would have already uh, picked out a lamb a week ago and uh, had it around the house, whatever, given it a name, something. Uh, so it, was, it would be a year-old lamb without any spots or anything, blemishes. And uh, on the day of Passover, preparation for the feast, we would go to the temple in Jerusalem, and we would uh, have, have the lamb slaughtered there. And uh, the uh, priest, uh, they were essentially butchers in the, in the ancient world, and they would slit uh, the lamb's throat and uh, catch... Uh, the blood that drained from its throat in, in a bowl. It's important uh, for what's going to happen later. They then butcher the animal and you take the meat and the blood home back to where we're going to have the meal here. And the blood's very important to the telling of the story because you'll remember the tenth and final strike of Yahweh's justice against Egypt was to do to Egypt precisely what they had done to Israel. That is to take the lives of, of their firstborn. But Yahweh provided a, a means of mercy and escape, right? And, and this is about the blood of the lamb. This is such an interesting symbol. And you'll see a picture here, this kind of traditional image. The, the head of the house was to take uh, a bunch of hyssop, which is a certain kind of leafy bush, and make it, bunch it together, and then uh, use it as a brush, and then smear it on the doorpost of the house. And on the night of Passover, Yahweh sent... Uh, a messenger of death, it's called a plague uh, among, among Egypt. And anyone, Egypt, Egyptian, Israelite, anybody who was in a house covered by the blood was spared, was spared from this strike of Yahweh's justice. And so uh, throughout all generations, as we, as we retell the story and come to the Passover lamb, we remember the blood of the Passover lamb that covered us so that we could be spared from this, this strike of Yahweh's justice. Now here's what's interesting, is what Jesus says at just this moment after the eating of the lamb. If you look down at verse 20, or you'll see it up here on the screen. In the same way, after the supper, after eating the lamb, he took the cup. May you be blessed, O Lord our God, King of the world, you create the fruit of the vine. Would you guys join me? In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, the third cup of the meal. This cup it's connected to the blood of the lamb. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's poured out for you. 
do this to remember me. No one had ever said anything like this before, right? The blood of the lamb is on your mind. Jesus is making this say, what's the crazy talk? That somehow we need to have this meal that I thought was about the past, but now I'm actually ingesting and participating his body and, and I'm ingesting and participating in these symbols of his blood. And it's no longer the blood of the lamb that's covering me. Somehow it's the blood of this man that's going to be the means by which I am spared or rescued or delivered. No one's ever said anything like this before. And you can imagine the, the disciples just scratching, scratching their heads. This is how Jesus explained the meaning of his death to, to his followers. Thank you, guys. How you guys doing? Have you recovered from the bitter herb? Yeah, me too. All right. Uh, let, yeah, one more drink. Yeah, go right ahead. Let's uh, give these guys a hand, and we'll, uh, we'll let them go sit down. <clears throat> Thanks. <clears throat> so notice uh, the term that Jesus used right there as he talked about the cup. Right? He, what did he say? This cup is what? He said it's the new covenant in my blood. And so the, the covenant is, is a term drawn from the Hebrew scriptures that tells the story of Yahweh moving forward the kingdom of God or his, his mission to redeem and to save in moments by entering into these covenant relationships with his people. He was in a covenant with his people, Israel, that he redeemed out of slavery, but Jesus was looking to the Hebrew prophets who looked forward to a new relationship that God would enter into with his people people, and that covenant would be somehow connected to the blood of a new lamb. All of this is swirling together, and Jesus is making all of these ancient symbols have new meaning. He knew that in roughly 12 hours, he was about to die, and he knew that he truly believed, and you can see it with what he says with these ancient symbols, that this this night and what would follow in the next days was like the turning point. It was a new exodus that was about to take place. And he was the lamb. And this, you know, I hope this has been interesting and fun and kind of cultural history lesson, and that's awesome. That's great. So it's good to learn things and to engage our minds. But if that's all that this is, then we completely miss the point. Because Jesus was convinced, dead convinced, pun intended, right, that that what happened in that small room, that quiet night, that last meal, that that was an event of significance for all humanity, all places, all times. Something was about to happen that would mean an exodus, a freedom from slavery, not just for his tribe, Israelites, but for, before the whole world. So think about what Jesus is doing here, if we kind of float above the, the meaning of Passover and the story of the Exodus, it's a story that moves in three kind of moments or has three key components of the story. So think about it this way, right? So you have through the lamb. The lamb is the key. Can you see this up here? Uh, you'll see it up here on the screen. It'll kind of help make sense. So the lamb is the key part of the meal, right? Because it's through the lamb that we are, are covered, and then redemption comes after the blood of the lamb. It's through the lamb who gets rescued. Israelites, mostly, although anyone could come under the covering of the lamb, and then they are rescued from whom? So big bad 
king of Egypt, right? Pharaoh. It's Pharaoh. That's the story of Exodus. And what Jesus does brilliantly, he takes this ancient meal and he wraps it all around himself and what's about to happen. And he uses the same storyline, but he swaps out all the players to give it new meaning. So all of a sudden, it's not through the lamb dying and that they're eating that redemption is going to take place. It's actually through his death. He said his suffering and his death, his body broken, his blood poured out. Jesus saw himself as somehow dying in the place of others. And who would be rescued from Jesus' death? Who, who would be just Israelites? So now you read his teachings. He clearly had a vision that his death had meaning and significance for the whole world, for all of humanity. And so the story that Jesus is telling is that through him, the whole world was somehow going to be rescued from slavery to what? To, to Caesar, like Pontius Pilate, you know, to Rome or something? Just so clearly not. He had another enemy, right? Another pharaoh in mind who was much more sinister, much more pervasive and universal in humanity. And so here's what this comes down to. Jesus, he's, he's clearly brilliant, and he's thought all this through. You read, you read his teachings. When Jesus looked out at the world, he didn't see my tribe and your tribe. You know? He didn't see the world in terms of Israelites versus the pagans or, or the people whom God is for and the people whom God is against. He didn't see the world that way. And it was scandalous to, to many people around him because he's constantly moved towards people who were considered outside of the boundary lines of what's okay for good, religious, observant Jews. And so he moved towards the tax collectors or the prostitutes or the lepers. And he was announcing to them that God's kingdom was available and open to them as well. He, saw, he just saw people, just humans made in God's image. And if you read his teachings, like you read the Sermon on the Mount, for example, Jesus, he knew that the human heart is an extremely complex thing that is sometimes capable of bringing out great beauty and goodness, which should be celebrated, but he also knew that the human heart is enslaved, enslaved to, to dark powers and dark things inside of us, things that lead us towards slavery. And so he, he, he had this one teaching where he said, it's not like somehow you're eating certain types of ritual foods that make you unclean. No, the, the uncleanness is rooted deep in the human heart. And it's shown by all of the behaviors that we manifest that show just how enslaved we are. Things like bitterness and anger, right? And, and unforgiveness and, and lust. These things that show there's something deeply wrong with me. And no one, you know, it's like my little two-year-old son right now. He's, I mean, I absolutely love him to death. Boy, he is selfish. You know what I mean? And I sure didn't teach him that. You know what I mean? Like he's just, it's just coming out of him. There are so many wonderful, beautiful things coming out of him too. But dude, he is just, he is about himself a lot of the time. You know what I'm saying? And it's just like, no, no one has to teach us that. It just comes out of us. If we're super honest with ourselves, we know there's something wrong with us. And that something wrong with us manifests itself. It, it manifests itself in broken relationships and broken families and marriages, 
result in, in neighborhoods and cities and governments that look like ours. And the moment any one of us tries to like clean our hands from it and say, I'm glad I'm not like those people, it just shows how incredibly naive we are about the darkness that's really inside of us, you know what I'm saying? And so when Jesus saw the world, he, he actually believed that Pharaoh is something that resides in every single one of us. We all have Pharaoh inside of us. And so what we really need to be rescued from is not the tyranny of Rome. What Jesus came to do was deal with the slavery of, of the human heart to these dark powers that have enslaved all of humanity. And so and what Jesus is doing with this, with this meal is he's saying that somehow his life would now be a life lived on behalf of others. And his death would now be like a stand-in to stand in the place of others. He would die so that others could live. He would become the whipped slave so that others could go free. And what we'll celebrate next Sunday is that he would be raised from the dead into new life so that he could give that resurrection life to all who would turn towards him in faith. The Passover meal tells the story of the gospel. It is the good news of Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us to free us. And this is the moment where this ancient meal stops being ancient history. It becomes a moment where Jesus confronts every single one of us to own up to, to the darkness that enslaves us. And it forces a moment, a, a crisis, a decision of faith. Do you really believe that Jesus can free you from the junk that's inside of you, from the mess and the dark and the brokenness and the sin? It's precisely what he said he came to do. And so every time there's four cups, four cups in a Passover meal, the fourth we're all going to take together in our time of worship here. And we do this every single week, but I, I trust that as we take the bread and the cup tonight, it has a new layer of significance and meaning because Jesus says when we take this meal together, we're reenacting the story that says he promises liberation and freedom for those who turn to him, freedom from sin and from death. And so there's, I, I know for a fact, there's some of us who are here tonight and like, we, you know, you didn't maybe even didn't want to come or something and you just, you've fallen again, you know you've given in again to the darkness inside of you and it might actually make you feel like it should prevent you from taking the bread and the cup. And that's precisely the opposite of what Jesus wants. <laughs> the whole point of taking the bread and the cup is that we're not worthy and we don't deserve it, but he's come to free us anyway. And so, man, don't miss out on, on this chance to take the bread and the cup as we go into Holy Week here together and march towards, towards Resurrection Sunday. So I'm going to pray, and, uh, and we'll kind of transition here, but uh, let's kind of just get our hearts into a, a mode of remembering. All right, there it was, the Messianic Passover meal. Um, I hope that you're never able to take the bread and the cup in quite the same way in your own community of worship. So thanks for listening, you guys, to Exploring My Strange Bible, and we'll have more episodes coming out. So see you next time. <laughs>